We just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to look at your word and to worship you through the word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead as we, as we examine this scripture. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule you in the midst of your enemies, that your people shall be willing in the day of your power, in the beauty of the holiness of the womb of the morning, but you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand will strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads of many countries. He, he shall drink of the brook in the way, and therefore shall he lift up the head. All right. This is a Messianic psalm, which means it's a picture of Jesus about Jesus. All right. And we know that through many different reasons. The Jews have understood it. Uh, Peter tells us in, a, in, one, in his epistle that this he refers to this as being belonging to Jesus. And so we're going to take a quick look at this. And this is a Psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit you at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So we're look at this very first verse. The Lord said unto my Lord. And this is a picture of God the Father speaking to Jesus because he is the Lord. And that is Yahweh is what it is in the Hebrew, which is the tetragram for God, it's Y-H-W-H, uh, and it is the name, the name reserved only for God, and we see that all through the scriptures, and it says, the Lord, or the God of all God said unto my Lord, which is, a, which is Adonai, which is a Lord or, or ruler, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and what's the right hand is? The side of approval. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father until he makes his enemies his footstool. And that pictures the rest that Jesus has. And one of the things we want to be able to look at is God brings us into Christ and he sets us up in faith rest. We are just to rest in him because he is the one that will accomplish what needs to be done. And we so often strive and, and try really hard to make things happen. And God oftentimes is just saying, relax and watch me work. Um, this one here, to me, it stumped me because I, I used to say this so easy. The Lord says to my Lord. Mm -hmm. Now, you're saying Jesus is talking to his father. The father is speaking to Jesus. Well, because number one, Jesus, this is written in a thousand years before he's born. Yeah, this is the Old Testament, so Jesus isn't existing. But the Father, talking to Jesus, saying, rest here beside me. Even before he was born? This is before he was born, but he exists. I mean, we gotta, he existed with the Father before eternity, but he does but not have been born did. yet. Yeah. So God can speak to him before he's born, but he's not born yet. So it's one of those confusing things for us. But... We know it's not David that he's speaking to because David is not going to be referred to by the Father as my Lord. And so we know that this is not referring to David and he's talking to Jesus, sit in my hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And footstool here in the Hebrew is always used of God talking about him resting his feet oh, so upon this world. Lower. No. Well, it's, a, it's in this case, it's... Put under your feet, yes. Yeah. Could be either way. Just a footstool where you put your feet up on something. Yeah, I mean, I and in battle, in battle in those days, oftentimes they would take the enemy and put them under their feet as a literal footstool uh, to show that they're in subjection to that person. So yes, that could be one of the meanings of this word. So, so Servant, punishment, you're subjected to him. So but Satan is not under our command. The only way we can command demons is because of Jesus in us, and it's him that commands them, not us. So we need to be very careful with those kind of things, because we have power, yes, but the power we have is because we're in subjection to Jesus Christ, and it's his power that gives us through him. A uh, great picture of this is the police officer standing in the middle of an intersection, and 
people paying attention to him. Why? Because he has authority and power given to him by the government uh, agencies. You know, he doesn't have enough power to stop those cars if they didn't want to stop. You know, they could, he could be blowing his whistle all day. I think of uh, uh, Andy Griffith's show with Barney's out there blowing his whistle and, and cars are crashing and banging into each other and making this big traffic jam because they didn't recognize the power, you know, nobody was recognizing the power that he had. Okay, we could stand all day yelling at Satan and trying to control Satan and the demons, even the, the lowest demon, and without being properly under authority of Christ, they'd laugh at us. Okay, because we have no power without the, power, the authority that we are in subjection to. And the only way we really understand power is by being in subjection to power. Jesus was in subjection to the Father, and in the flesh he had power that was great because of who he was. The Lord, in verse 2, the Lord said, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule you in the midst of your enemies. So this is God coming down and ruling. The rod, the, the tribe is really what it amounts to. And it says he will send the tribe, the rod of your strength out of Zion. And we've covered many times on what Zion is, and Zion is literally Jerusalem, or actually that whole mountain, that whole mountain of Jerusalem, and also called Moriah. If you, when you think about this, and if you think back to the time when Abraham offered Isaac up, he went to Mount yeah. Moriah, that is Jerusalem as well. That's where Jesus died. It's Golgotha, Mount Moriah, Mount Jerusalem, whatever. It's still a very important place in history for a long time. And this is why Satan is trying to control that area so much so that because of how much uh, authority in this is. But he says, the Lord shall send the, his strength out of Zion, rule you in the midst of your enemies. This is going into end times now. We're seeing the end time picture when the Messiah will rule. This is what the disciples, when they were following Jesus, were waiting for Jesus to take power, the rod, strength, rule in Zion and rule in the midst of his enemies and kick Rome out of Israel. That was what they were waiting for. They were waiting for that great day when they were going to have their deliverance from and their thought time process out of Rome. Now we know that when Jesus does come back, the Antichrist will be ruling in that area. He will be in there and he will still be in the midst of his enemies when he rules and he comes back. He's going to come back from the seven years of tribulation, step down on Mount, the Mount of Olives, set up the government and bring everything into subjection to himself for a thousand years. We know that that is coming still. The Jews have always been waiting for that day, waiting for the day that the Messiah will come and establish Israel in its proper place in the center of all things. And you know, that's, their, that's their thought pattern. They're waiting for that day when Israel will rule from Mount Zion and the Messiah will run, rule everything. Not Satan, the right to rule there, but what, what, will, what, what makes him take that place over any other place? Because it's important to God for whatever reason. Why does he keep people from coming to Christ? Because it, the more people he can keep from coming to God and Christ, the more people the more he hurts God because we're his precious creation. That's the only victory he has. He knows he's defeated. He knows he's going to lose. And the idea, it is really that idea of misery loves comfort. And even though there is no misery loves company, rather, you know, you know even though you're not going to know each other in hell because you're, it's a, quiet, a dark place, a place where you're going to be in total punishment, Satan is trying to get as many people away from God as possible so he can hurt God. People are the epitome of God's creation. If he had his way, he'd just destroy every man in this world instantly. Which is why when some people t will say that during the tribulation period, Satan has an, a free hand to do whatever he wants, that is not true. God is still in control of Satan and what Satan can and can't do. Now, he gives them a lot of freedom. Millions of people are going to die during that period of time, but not every single person will die instantly and that's what Satan would do if he if he had total free hand the world would be obliterated of people. Something I never completely understood is why God allows him to have that, that moment. 
He's using them to test people and allow people a choice. At this point, he's using Satan. Satan is being used. Okay, he thinks that he's winning. He thinks he's getting something, but he is being used by God. He rebelled in heaven. God cast him out of heaven. And this world has become a trial. And Job is a great example of what's going on in heaven. Uh, it's an idea of God says, these are my people. I'm going to show you how ju just I am and how I can redeem people. And so there's this battle going on that says, I'm going to show you how loving and kind I am. It appears to us that angels no longer have the ability to choose. Just as we won't have the ability to choose after we die. Once we're dead, our decision is made and we will have an eternal decision that doesn't change. At some point in the past, the demons probably had some kind of decision to make and they, one third of them chose against God and apparently have no choice in the matter at this point. They've made their decision and they're stuck with the, what their decision was. Just as we will be, quote unquote, stuck. I, I'll be happy to be stuck with my decision for God after I die. Those who have rejected him will not be happy to have rejected him in that, in that decision. But we keep in mind, Satan is being used. There's a cosmic activity going on that we don't really fully understand. Satan has rejected God, and God is using humanity to do, be a witness for him. Job was called to the witness stand. Okay, Job, your turn to stand at the witness stand before, before heaven, before the angels. And Satan tried hard to get him to reject God, and he failed. Not every witness that stands before him does a good job, just as in real court. There are some people that are very good witnesses, and they go to court, and there are some that fall apart and don't do a good job. Doesn't mean that their sinners are bad, it just means that they didn't do a good job in the witness chair. And this is what he's saying. God is saying, just sit here and wait. Your enemy is going to be your footstool. Can you imagine this? Kind of pictures the idea that hell is the footstool of Jesus in heaven because those are where his enemies go. So hell becomes a footstool in, for, or the lake of fire, which is what the ultimate place of them go. But he says, you're going to rule and you're going to rule in the midst of your enemies. And this is the place, this is really starting to talk about the millennial kingdom where they are all put in subjection. During the millennial kingdom, Jesus will rule with an iron scepter, which means they'll be forced to be obedient. And there's a number of people that will still be alive when Jesus returns that haven't taken the mark of the beast and, and are seeking after him, mostly Jews, because they're the ones that are going to be in that area. They're going to be protected. They're going to be set aside. But there'll be a handful of people that have not taken the mark of the beast that will be alive physically when the millennial kingdom starts. And there'll be a thousand years to fill the earth. And Jesus will rule. It'll, it'll be a time very much like the uh, Garden of Eden. Not perfect, but everybody will be made to be righteous. It says at that period of time that the animals are going to be living together. There won't be... It, there won't be the death the way we know it as, as today. And the animals would be back to the way they were when they were created, friendly, and non-lethal non to humans. And we see this whole new picture of a world we can't even imagine for 1,000 years. At the end of that 1,000 years, Satan is released to give people one final test. And that one final test is going to be a real simple one. What does man say even today? If, if, if we only had a good environment, there would be no problems. The world will have a thousand years with a perfect environment. No sin, no evil, nothing but good taught. And Satan will be released. And it says many will follow after him will for that final battle. Will it be the same years, like you say a thousand years, like we live the most, maybe a hundred? Is it going to be probably the same kind of time that we're living in right now? When you say they're going to, it's going to be a thousand years when? A thousand years means a thousand years. And so it's going to be like, okay, now. Like, it's not going to be one day because no, no, no. people will go a thousand, a, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. So no, it's not going to be one day. It's going to be a literal, I really think because it is something that is very clear that is going to be a literal Just 1,000 like years. Right Just like no, uh, Adam lived to be 900 and some years old, uh, Methuselah lived to be 969 years, uh, 65 years. Also, then it won't be like now because we don't live to be 
No, it, it'll be made into a more perfect environment oh. and people will be given the lives, the long lives that they were supposed to live. We'll be there in our glorified bodies as the bride of Christ. We'll be ruling with Christ during that period of time. We're, we won't fail because we will, we will have our glorified bodies. We will be perfect at that point for, yeah, for the rest. We will be living in a body as Jesus had after his resurrection. So if Jesus came right now, then the thousand years would be right then, wouldn't it? Yes, but it's gonna, there's going to be the seven years of tribulation before that happens. We won't be here when he comes back because if we know him, we will be taken into heaven. We'll have, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. we'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb, the judgment seat of Christ. We will come behind him as he rides on the white horse coming in victory. We will be behind him and watching him fight the battle because all he's going to do is speak and the, the battle will be over. And he will put everything into subjection unto himself. But then I'm saying he could come so then we would be gone, but the seven years in would start while we're up, up there with him. Yeah. But he won't be there during that period of time. He'll come back at the end of the seven years. Whether there will be people left behind that actually intended to do this work, or there will, will there be people chosen from. Revelation tells us that there'll be 144,000 Jewish evangelists that will be chosen to do his work. There will also be the two witnesses that will stand in Jerusalem against the Antichrist and will be killed halfway through that period of time. When the church is raptured away, everything focuses back on the Jews. Now, Gentiles will get converted during this period of time, obviously, but everything shifts back to the Jews. The time of the church has been since the period that Jesus, basically since Jesus was born, till whenever we're raptured is the time of the church. And and God is not done with the Jews. He's kind of put them up on the shelf for a time. But when the church is raptured, the church age is over. God reverts back to the, to the Jews. The Jewish 144,000 will be the Jewish evangelists. 12,000 from each tribe. You'll have the, the two witnesses that stand in Jerusalem in front of the temple and, and cannot be touched until such time as God says their time is over. And then they are killed in the very front and the whole world witnesses that death they hold they hold great big parties at our our troublemaker our troublemakers are over and they'll sleep and they'll be down for three days and then they'll be resurrected and taken into heaven and everybody sees that because they'll you know and for years that statement was you know considered you know well it means most people not everybody because you can't now nowadays we look and say while these guys are troubling them, there'll probably be a station on them, the witnesses, 24-7, especially when they're dead. You know, these troublemakers are dead. Here they are, and the, they'll be watching them for having parties and all this other stuff, and then they'll be resurrected, and the whole world will see the power of God again. There is a generation that, of believers that will not die physically because we will be taken into heaven. Now, whether that's our generation or down the road is still, we don't know, but there will be a generation of believers that do not physically die because they will be raptured and taken out of heaven just as Enoch was. He, it says that he was walking along and then he was with the Father. Oh, it's going to be huge problems. It'll be a big deal with when, when millions of people all of a sudden just disappear. There, some places it'll be dark in the middle of the night nobody will really know or care. Other places it'll be the middle of rush hour. Can you imagine the chaos in the middle of rush hour if thousands of people just all of a sudden disappeared out of their cars? Just today with an automatic car, it'll keep, it'll keep idling and keep running until it hits something. But we see here the power that God is going to give Jesus. He says, here's your time to rule. And we're going to see how this goes in verse 3. Your people shall willingly in the day of your power in the beauty of your holiness from the womb of the morning that you have the dew of your youth. The people will be willing in the day of your power you know, to be ruled. When Jesus came, the people were not willing for him to rule. They, they wanted it. They kind of wanted him to be Messiah, but they weren't willing to be ruled. When Jesus returns in power at the end of the seven years of tribulation, he will be recognized for who he is 
and be and they're going to be more than willing to they'll worship anybody who gives them gives them victory at that point in time and he's coming back in victory at that time remember when jesus first came into t jerusalem during his life he came riding on a donkey the donkey indicated that the king was coming in peace not not war in revelation when he comes he's, on a horse. he's riding on a white horse war and that is the war i'm coming i'm coming for war I'm coming in, basically I'm coming in victory. You did that at the very end, the war is just about over, and you come riding in on the white horse into the cap capital of the country. That's how Jesus comes on the second time. He comes on the white horse, and that means he's coming in military victory, and all that it means in a military victory, that you are in subjection to that ruler, whether you want to or not. In America, the South, when it capitulated in the Civil War, was treated as a conquered territory by the North, which is why the, the South still hates the Northern, the federal government to this day, because of the way that they were brutalized and mistreated after the war and made into, colon, uh, made into they had military governors instead of their own elected leaders until they could prove that they could be good citizens again. But Jesus was gonna come and he's gonna come with that same mentality. You are a conquered place and he will rule with that iron scepter. And you, you think about this, God is the perfect one to iron, rule with an iron scepter. You're thinking about a rebellion, <laughs> and he's gonna know that you've been even thinking about it. I mean, it's not, you're not gonna be able to get away with anything. You can't make, you know, your rebellion won't even get off the ground because the moment you start asking people to come and, you probably won't even get to ask them to come and gather <laughs> because it'll be, he knows our thoughts. And he's going to go, I, I'm, I'm sorry, you're not even going to, you're, you're, you're guilty. You're not going to even think those ways. And we think about this. With that kind of rule, with people who want to do wrong, when Satan does get released at the end of a thousand years, they're going to jump, many will jump at the chance to be able to rebel. And the idea that, oh, here's somebody who's going to lead a battle against God. And they, you know, and it's hard to imagine. But the ultimate goal on this is just as I said. In our day and age, people say, if you just were in a perfect environment, everything would be okay. The end of the thousand year reign when Satan comes along will be a, the proof that a perfect environment still will not keep people from sinning. It didn't keep the first two parents from sinning. It definitely won't keep thousands or millions of people from sinning at the end of a thousand years. Because imagine how many people are gonna be born during that thousand years. Yeah. Thousand years gives a lot of people that can be born, especially in a perfect environment where people aren't going to be dying. There'll still be children born. There'll still be businesses going on. There'll still be. At the very end, they'll be given that choice: Are you going to choose God or reject God? And I'm glad you said it because I'm going to ask you: Are children going to be born in that thousand? As far as we know, children are born during that period of time. Because it talks about the child sitting on the nest of the asp and playing and not playing with the asp, you know, which we can't do right now, but that they will have no worries. They'll be children. They will grow. Uh, it says in that day that somebody that lives to be 100 will be, uh, 100 and will be considered a child <laughs> because of how long lifespan is becoming again. There's not death during the thousand We don't know for sure. The indications are that there, is, there might be death because there's still things that can happen. There, you got people who are alive doing with a sin nature who can make wrong decisions. And it says that somebody who dies at 100 will be considered a child. So there apparently is death during that period of time. Now, will it be normal? Absolutely not. Well, Satan will still be killing people. Satan will be bound up during that time. He, we, he's bound up for a thousand years. At the end of the tribulation, he and the demons are bound up and he will be released at the end of a thousand years. So mankind still living here can sin without him here? Of course. Most of us sin without any influence of the devil or Satan anyway. Because we have the lust of the flesh, the, the, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Most, uh, most of us, um, um, when we sin, are sinning on our own accord without Satan or the demons being involved in any way, shape, or form. Oh, so, I'm glad you said that, because so sometimes when we sin, it's not from Satan. Most of the time when we sin, it's not from Satan. It's us, it's our flesh, our desire to sin. Which is why it's our, when God judges us, he judges us fairly because it is us who choose to sin. 
Now, if you get strong enough and Satan, you catch Satan's eyes like Job did, you might, might have a demon attached to you. Very few people will ever have Satan attached to, to trying to get them to sin. But we have enough problems in, our, in and of ourselves to, to sin. Well, because we would like it to be somebody else's fault. We would love for it to be somebody who tempted us and it wasn't our choice. Well, Eve was tempted. Eve was tempted. Adam chose. Picture that he didn't want to be separated from Eve, so he chose to eat that fruit as well. God, it's your fault. You gave her to me. <laughs> okay, so he goes, God, it's your fault and her fault. I'm not to blame. Eve, Eve didn't try to go back to God. She just pointed to the devil. <laughs> And God didn't even let the devil speak. He judged the devil. But yes, it's been the problem forever. We always want to blame somebody else. And even to our day, as, as was just being said, we like to point, it's, it's, it's a demon's fault. They tempted me. No, it's our fault that we sin. Not, and sometimes we do it without even having a, tempta- you know, a, real, a real reason for temptation. But anyway, back to verse 3. It says, the people will be willing in the day of your power in the beauty of the holiness of the womb of the morning that you have the dew of your youth. The beauty of his holiness. That's a phrase that has been used several times in, in Psalms. And it refers to the holy place in the tabernacle or the temple where God rules. But even more, it refers to the holy place. Because remember, the tabernacle was a picture of the heavenly throne room. Where God sits on the literal throne of mercy above the, on the seat of propitiation with the altars in front of him. This is why Noah was, um, Noah, yeah, why Moses was told, make it exactly the way you're told to and worship exactly the way I tell you to because they were being given the picture of the throne room of heaven where God sits in the holy place with the angels above, his, above him. In Isaiah 6, that he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and the angels cried, Holy. And you had the seraphim flying around the throne of God, singing, Holy, 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 Holy is the Lord God. And when he said, Who shall I send? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. The angel went over to the altar and picked up an ember from the altar that is in heaven and put it upon his lips and said, Now you have been purified. We see the picture of the tabernacle that God is set up in heaven. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, tells us all about how the temple was a picture of the heavenly uh, throne room. So we know that it is a very special place. When we get into heaven, there's going to be a special place where God sits on the throne with all of this stuff that he's given us that we can see the, the, the shadow of. Which means, of course, that it's very, it's much more than what God has described. And the much that he described here is so much of such great beauty that it would be hard to picture what the throne room of heaven will be like. And Satan has access to the throne room of heaven. And this is hard for us to understand in, in our day and age because we can't just picture being able to go into the, the front row, the front seat of a governor or a king or, or, the, or the president. But in the day that we're talking about, in through all, all the medieval times, you could enter the castle through the main gates and you walked into the throne room of the castle. That is where the court was held. That's where you petitioned the king. That's where you could meet the royalty was in the throne room. Satan still has access to the, king, to the king, kingdom of heaven's throne room. He doesn't have access to heaven, but he has access to the throne room. Just as any commoner in this day that is written had access to the throne room. You could go in and make your petition to the king in the throne room. Now, very few people would have access to the side rooms where the, where the big celebrations would go, the, dan- you know, the, the dance floor and the, and, the, and the big area for dining and partying. That took invitations. And usually on either side, there were these big rooms for the celebrations. Very few people. You had to be invited to go to those. Beyond those, you didn't go. (laughs) You didn't go into the private living area of the king and his court. But you had access to the throne room. Satan still, to this day, has access to the throne room. He 
Yes. He stands daily before God accusing the brethren. Us. So he, is in, he has access to the throne room of heaven even today. Now he won't during the thousand years that he is bound up. And after he starts his final rebellion and he is cast into the lake of fire, he will not have access to anything but the lake of fire for eternity, which all those who reject Jesus will have be in. It, and that was created for Satan and the demons and will be used for any of the humanity who rejects Jesus Christ's sacrifice. So here we have the beauty of your holiness. And it says in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, this is speaking of Jesus. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek, you ask? So we're going to look at who Melchizedek is. In Genesis chapter, I think it's 14, we have the, we have the story of, of Abraham returning from the battle of the seven kings uh, where the seven kings come down from the north. They, they attack uh, Sodom and five kings. They, they conquer those five kings. They, they grab all the people and all the possessions, including Lot, Abraham's nephew, and they start riding north. Abraham gets told that Lot has been taken by the kings. Lot, uh, Abraham grabs his 300 trained, trained uh, servants. He chases after the seven kings catches up to them and defeats them completely. It tells you how powerful his army was trained, his, his servants were trained at this time, to defeat seven kings, seven cities most likely. And he wins the battle and he comes back. And he's bringing all the stuff back in towards Sodom. And it tells us that Melchizedek comes and meets him. And Mel, yeah, verse 18. And Melchizedek is called the king of Salem or the king of peace. Now, there is a lot of debate on whether there is a real person named Melchizedek who lives at that time, which is possible. But Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe of all that he possesses. And he is blessed by the king of Salem. So there are two possibilities. This person is either a very righteous individual who is a follower of God, who is a very true, true king, and there are those who believe that he is the king of Salem, which is later on called Jerusalem. There are many, and myself included, that believe that Melchizedek is a uh, Christophany and was a picture of Jesus, that it, actually Jesus met Abraham on his return from, from the battle of, of the seven kings and received the tithe directly from Abraham. Jesus. Well, Jesus is God, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to be real strong either way. I do believe that it was a pre, uh, Christophany, a pre-incarnate picture uh, appearance of Jesus, but it really doesn't matter. Even if it's just a very righteous king that meets him out in the middle of the wilderness and he recognizes that he is a follower of the one true God, and treats him, he's considered also a priest. And it's told to us that Jesus is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, and we see this whole thing. He has to be, Jesus is called a priest, and he cannot be a priest after the order of Aaron because he is not a Levite. He is from the tribe of Judah, which is the ruling tribe. Okay? He has his kingship because he is of the tribe of Judah. He is called a priest because God is saying you're going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you want to find out more about it, go into Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. And the writer of Hebrews goes all over how Jesus couldn't be a, rule, a priest after the order of Aaron because he's not a Levite and he had to be after the order of Melchizedek. And a long, very scholarly writing about why, because he was a priest, it couldn't be of Aaron, it had to be of Melchizedek. Huh? Hebrew 5, 6, and 7. My translation reads totally with the announcement. It says here this whole song announces the eternal priesthood of Messiah, one of the most important statements of Scripture. And then it quoted all those scriptures that you gave. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, because that's where 
that's where it all is all talking about that he is after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a king and a prophet and a priest. Okay, and that's how he will be. How he was seen. He was seen. He will be seen as king. He was seen as prophet during his time that he walked, and he was considered a pre. Will be will be considered the priest, and he is the God. He is part of part of God. So we see all of this that he says he will not repent. God won't change his mind. He's going to be after that order forever, and we have to. Sometimes we have this very small picture of Jesus. You know, he's our savior. You know, that's big enough. And that really is a big picture, isn't it? That he's our savior. He came and died for us. But he is also going to be the ruler of everything for eternity. And we're his bride. We will rule with him during that period of time. And he's the prophet. And he is the priest. And, you know, we've talked about this when we were back when we were studying on the Wednesday nights in, in uh, Leviticus. And we talked about the sacrifices the Bible is very clear that the sacrifices don't completely end at the end of all, all of this because there's, there's not just the burnt sacrifices. There's the meal offering. There's the fellowship offering. There will be sacrifices as we come to God and we give up some of what we have to him because we love him so much. And that's, we've got to understand, we as Gentiles, we kind of go, well, there's just sacrifice. You know, there's just the one sacrifice. And we talked about how there's five different sacrifices as far as the Jews are concerned. And not all of them have to do with sin. Matter of fact, only one has to do with sin. Most of them have to do with fellowship. So we see all of this coming down that God's got some special things for us. And Jesus is that priest. He is the one that he took his blood when he died to the throne room of heaven and put it on the mercy seat in heaven. His blood was placed on the mercy seat of heaven. And the other name for the mercy seat is the seat of propitiation. He put his blood on the seat of heaven that satisfied God's anger towards sin. And he did that as the priest because the priest was the one that took it into the Holy of Holies and placed the blood on the, on the mercy seat. Jesus did that as our high priest. There's all kinds of priests long before this. Nimrod set up the, ba the Babylonian religion and there were priests in, in the Babylonian religion. So there's been priests all along. Okay, Satan has set up an opposing religion from the beginning. And it goes all the way back to Nimrod, goes all the way back to Cain. Cain was worshiping the wrong way and set up the wrong type of worship. Did he have priests? I don't know, but we do know for sure that Nimrod had set up a religion that had priests in it. And were there other priests before that? Probably. Not God's priest, but priests. So, yes, there were lots of priests. I mean, that's, there's been priests before the, the tribe of Aaron was made the, the priests. So, yes, that's something that when they said, we're going to make you priest, it was understood to them what a priest was, one that goes, stands before God. What era was Nimrod? What point in history, history Nimrod was just a, a hundred years or so after the flood. And he set up Babylonian uh, religion, he was the one that during his period of time, there's great battle between following the one true God and the, the gods that Nimrod was setting up. Uh, it was a very bad time. And Eber, who is uh, the last of the long living people, was one who was uh, in comp competition with him because he was following God and Nimrod was building a false religious system. All false religions have their roots in the Babylonian religion. It set up the whole priestly system. It had the sacrifice system and the, and the good works system was all has its roots in that uh, Babylonian religion of that day, who is uh, just like two, yeah, two generations beyond the flood. Within a couple hundred years, you had Nimrod setting up an opposition uh, Seth is still alive when, when Nimrod is, is running. Uh, Noah is still alive when, when Nimrod is first starting this up. There's, there's all these people who can testify to the power of God as Nimrod is setting up his anti-God religion. And so there's a huge battle going on. And this shows you how far back the battle goes between God and, and what is against God. Well, you could go all the way back to Cain. Cain and Abel offering the sacrifices incorrectly for Cain. So this battle's been going on forever of Satan trying to say, 
follow me, basically. Do things your own way. And this is something we have to be very careful of because this is becoming very popular in our day for people to say, I can worship God the way I want to. We hear Christians who will even say that. I can worship God the way I want to. No, we have to worship God the way he tells us to worship him because that is the sin that goes all the way back. Cain brings an offering of his own labors to present to God and saying, God, I'm going to worship you my way. And God rejects him. And Cain gets angry. And he starts an entire line of people that are worshiping God their own way and not worshiping God from all of his descendants. Whereas Seth's line worships God the way God wants to. We get after the flood. And they know better after the flood. Everybody starts from one family again. And within a within hundred years or so, we've got Nimrod rising up and saying, we can worship God the way we want to. We're going to build a tower and get us away above and be able to be protected against the floods and, and all these other things. We're going to worship God our way. To our day and age where people are saying, well, I can just worship God my way. I don't have to read the Bible. I don't have to believe what it says. I can do things my way. Nothing, because it was doing things their own way. They're presenting my work, my good works, and my works to the to the deities. So what's the significance of Babylonia? You made a statement earlier that it was. Kind of it seems to be the root. It seems to be the root of all all negative bad things, and it's talked about in Revelation that Babylon is going to be reestablished, and the, the Babylonian religion will be reestablished. And you, you root, you take back, and all these faults, all the teachings within these false religions are based in the in Babylon, Mystery Babylon. It has the idea of the Queen of Heaven rising up and, and ruling over everything. And the Queen of Heaven is, is to give birth to the, 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 their version of the Messiah, who will be killed and died three days, be dead for three days and rise again. All of the elements of Christianity are placed within the Babylonian system and is seen through all the various false religions that have branched off of this. Much of what's done in, in, these, in our false religions have their roots in, in what the Babylonian religion taught. It took the true nature of the stars and turned it into astrology, into the stars rule your life instead of picture the gospel of Christ in it. And we see all of the all these negativities start with their roots there. So that's how it started? Yep. Well, Babylonia then would be uh, uh, mainly because of its influence. Had, it's always had influence all through these years. Uh, of, uh, you know, more folks. Uh, well, it was, uh, it was the first great city established and the first city to hold with a ruler that held sway over more than one sit, one town. In the old days, you were a king, and you were a king of your town. But did the folks around uh, Cain, were they aware of what was happening with this uh, analogy? For Cain and Babylon? Not, no, because there was no Cain and Babylon at no, that I mean, time. Uh, but Cain obviously knew what it was. They obviously knew what the right sacrifice was. And how did they know that sacrifice? Because... God himself slew the animal to provide skins for Adam and Eve. So they understood that it took blood to cover the sins because that's one that they would have been taught. And we have uh, Abel bringing a lamb to God saying, I'm shedding the blood as you were told. What does it say that Cain brought? The works of his hands. He brought his good works. So it really is right from the very beginning, that very first sacrifice we're told about, Abel doing it the right way. God, I'm offering what you want, the blood. Cain coming in and saying, here's my good works, God, accept me. The same battle that's been going on right from the beginning. Yep. And this is why we say there's nothing new under the sun. Everything is still based upon what happened in the past. And we see Mystery Babylon, that whole religion that has the picture of the Woman riding on the serpent, and that we see in Psalms, that we see that we that we see in Proverbs, that we see that the Catholic Church has this idea of 
Mary will be the one who rides the serpent and brings, around, brings rule down in, the, in their deepest, deepest uh, doctrines that they don't talk about to their day-to-day people. Mystery Babylon rides very strongly in the minds of the, of the Catholic Church in Rome. So we see the roots of all this falseness still laying around. And every once in a while, you'll see elements of it within churches that are following without knowing what they're doing, but the roots of all this false stuff is still in existence. And it's very important. The, the Mystery of Babylon had a pantheon of 36 gods, and they had what they called the, the perfect square, where they'd list these gods with their numbers. And you know what? Each side of the perfect square, magic square in, in Babylon adds up to 666. So when they talk about the number of the beast being 666, there are many people who believe that it goes back to the Babylonian pantheon of the gods being, being brought into, into thought pattern again. So there's all kinds of different things that we look at and say, what is it exactly that God is saying that we're going to be careful of? Jesus is coming back to rule after all of Satan tries to become the master and ruler. And he's going to make it look good. It's going to look like he's bringing peace originally. The Jews are thinking he's going to bring peace because he's going to give them their temple. He's going to give them peace for a period of time and then he's going to stand up in the temple and say, I am God, worship me. And they'll realize that they have been lied to. And they'll be ready when Jesus comes to worship him, just like this verse says. They will be willing in the day of his power because he's going to come back. There's much that's going to go happen in the end days. Much. Babylon is going to rise up again with all of that religious system that it represents. And it's not talking about Muslims. It'll be talking about that combination of religions that are anti-Christian religions, which are almost every religion out there, you know, based upon good works. And that's the, big, the biggest thing, and that goes all the way back to Cain. God, he brings his good works. God, here's, here's the best that I, can, that I can give you. I grew all these vegetables with the sweat of my brow, except my good works. And even to this day, people are coming to God. God, accept my good works because this is the best I can give you, and God's going to say, it's not good enough. Right now, there's a lot going on on trying to rebuild Babylon. And we know, according to Revelation, that it will be rebuilt. It will be made the center of, of everything. Babylon seems to be Satan's equivalent to Jerusalem. For some reason, God has said, Jerusalem is where my heart is. Babylon seems to be where, where Satan has put his, his whole heart in, other than to try to destroy Jerusalem because it's God's. But Babylon is always seeming to be the seat that Satan has his power in. At your right hand will, shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. This is a picture of the final battle where Jesus comes and he speaks. Can you imagine that battle? Satan has put together the whole world to go against God. He comes marching on God and Jesus just speaks. <laughs> yeah, that just, we sometimes forget the power of God and how powerful he is. Do you realize that all things are held together by the power of Jesus is what, what we're told by Paul? And he didn't understand the whole thing, but literally the world is held together by God. That's so amazing. You know, if God just lost his concentration on this world for a second, a nanosecond, this whole world would just blow to pieces because he holds everything together. Because the very essence of a cell, of an of a atom, cannot exist. Okay? Scientifically, an atom cannot exist by all the rules we understand. But God holds it together. He holds the nucleus in his hand because the protons should not stay together. The electrons should not spin around the protons. They should, the protons should blow up and the, neutron, the electrons should be collapsing into the protons, and yet they, they hold together as atoms. God holds them together. What kind of battle plan can Satan possibly have? I'm going to rebel against God, and I'm going to be victorious. And if it got bad enough, God could just say, okay, world, be gone. 
and if it's going to blow up and destroy, which is how it's going to be destroyed at the very end anyway. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire, and God's going to say, okay, just let everything disintegrate. It all blows up in a, in a great big fireball, and God recreates it all. All he's going to do is say, okay, go into your natural state, which is nothing. And it says, the Lord at your right hand shall strike the king through for, in his wrath. And this strike through means to shatter, to crush, to smite and severely injure. And it's going to be a complete conquest. His enemies are going to be so destroyed that there'll be nothing left. You talk about victory. Yeah. We will see a victory from God so thorough that there won't be any opposition. And then when it's time to restart this world, get rid of all, all evidence that there was ever any sin in it and restart. The whole world is, was changed by that sin. Everything about this world was changed. Animals were changed. The very ground was changed. The vegetation was changed. It said that when you told Adam, when you harvest, the ground is going to produce thorns and thistles, weeds. And it still produces lots of weeds. You know, we, can't, we can't even picture what this world would be like without weeds. And there's going to come that time when God reestablishes it and everything will be made back to being perfect. And then we'll be back to tending this world the way it's supposed to be in a perfect world. And he says, he will judge among the heathen and fill the places with dead bodies and the wound the heads of many countries. The whole world is going to come against him. He's going to destroy all those enemies. And then I love verse 7 as we look at it. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up his head. After this victory, it is so thorough that he is able to drink on, on the brook on his way because it's nothing but peace. When you're in the middle of a battle, you do not take time to drink and eat in a, from a brook situation. It would be very furtive. I'm, I'm drinking from my can and looking around. I'm eating the, the little you know, emergency rations pack. And this is that picture of everything is done. You're at so much peace, you can just stop at the brook and enjoy yourself for a while. And this is how much peace, the rest. God has a rest. He brings us as Christians in the midst of our trials and says, he leads us beside still water so that we can have a drink in the middle of all this chaos that's so peaceful and we are at rest. And he says, here you go. I'm giving you peace. Do you realize how wonderful it is to be a Christian and be at peace in the middle of all of the chaos and the battle going on around us spiritually? And yet so many times we're, we're worrying about this, that, and the other thing, and God's saying, rest. You're at my right hand. I'm in control. We are to rest. And yet we worry about all the things that we can do. That doesn't mean we don't do anything, and you know, we've got to be careful when we say this. We are at rest, but and God will give us things to do. But he's already given us victory because he won the battle. And when he sends us out to do things, he goes before us. And he does the work. This is the wonderful thing about watching God do things and watching how he accomplishes things. I don't have to worry about how I'm going to do something because it's not me doing it. It's God doing it. Before we started, we were talking about knocking on doors and how, how some people just can't do it. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, you'll be surprised when, if and when you start to do it and you start talking and God starts filling your mouth and you go, wow, this is easier than, it, than I thought. Are there certain people gifted better to do it? Absolutely. I've seen people that are just amazingly good at it. And I've told you, I went to lunch one time with an evangelist. And it was amazing how he told everybody about the gospel of Jesus and nobody got offended because he did it so well. If I had tried to witness to everybody the way he did, I would have offended somebody. But this guy was gifted at it. But just because we are not specially gifted at it does not mean we are to say, nope, I'm not doing it because I'm not gifted to do it. We need to be willing to say, I, it needs to be done, I want to do it and serve God. Now, I've been doing this kind of, that kind of stuff since about the time I was 12 years old. My dad got saved, and we went door knocking with my dad for the church that we were in. And he took, because there was nobody else to watch his kids, he took all three of us kids with him. So you got experience. 
So we got to see, well, I got to see how it was done. Uh, now, I didn't always stay with my dad because he usually split the three of us, you know, us three kids up, you know. You didn't want five people knocking at your door when you, you know. When, so we'd end up with other groups. But we see the way God works. When I first did a street evangelism, we went to a church, I went to a church that would take an entire bus, or, bus load or two of people out, go to the downtown area of some nearby town, and we'd witness on the streets. It was scary at first. It was hard at first. But after a while, you got used to it. And again, there were some people who were really good at it. It was their ministry. And there were others that just did it out of the idea of, I want to share Christ and, and witness to people. But the biggest thing is we take that step of faith and let God fill our mouth. Because he promised the disciples that he would fill our mouths. And it wasn't just the disciples he was making that promise to. It was to all of us. And I'm going to tell you, the more you do these things, the more you're going to be amazed at how God fills your mouth. Because there will be times when you'll be sitting back saying, wow, I'm not that, I'm not that good at speaking. I'm not that good at being able to share Christ. Sharon has talked about it in her, in her shop where God has filled her mouth. <laughs> and she says things that she didn't know, know how to say. And it comes out very eloquent and, and, and well. God will fill our mouth when we will dare to step forward and, and speak. And it'll be scary. It'll be nerve-wracking at first. But the more you do it, the more you start seeing God faithful, the easier it gets. And some people will always get mad at you. That's just the nature of it is. We're in a battle. We're going to be sharing Christ with people who don't want to be shared Christ with. Uh, and we'll tell one last story with this time to end. Um, there was a pastor one time. He was starting a church, and he was out door knocking on Saturdays. He went up to this one house, and the guy cursed at him for coming to his house. About a month later, he went to the guy's house, and the guy threw a bucket of cold water on him in the middle of winter. And... He went up again and got cursed at and, you know, and spit on. He went the fourth time, and I can tell you, would I be willing to go four times the same door after this happened? Probably not. But he knocked on the guy's door, and he goes, I've been waiting for you. I knew you'd be here. I need help. And the guy got saved. So we never know what will happen. We never know what will be the case when we go to talk to people. You may get abused terribly for a while, but... God can also be the one using you for that one person that all of a sudden is ready to respond. We, and we shared this before. When we share the word with God, we don't know if that person's ready to respond or not. The great privilege is when you get to speak to somebody and, and they're ready to pray. And they've been talked to many times before and you're just the one they finally respond to. Many times we're just that person who's putting the little water in the, in the ground on the seed. And they're going to reject us, but it's just a little bit of water on it. Maybe we're the one planting that first seed. We don't know. Our job is just to share what the Holy Spirit does afterwards. And many people, when you listen to their testimony, they'll be talked to by somebody in the afternoon or the morning. And that night when they're laying in bed, the Holy Spirit will minister to them. And the thought will go something like, what if that, what if that crazy person's right? <laughs> what if that crazy person I met telling me about Jesus is right? And the Holy Spirit works on them in the quietness of their own room. And they'll accept Jesus Christ. So you never know where you are when you're sharing this, sharing this message with people. You never know who you are. You never know where that, what that seed's going to do. You never know how they're going to respond. When we get to heaven, there are going to be people that come up to you and say, I'm here in part because of you. I watched the way you lived. I watched what you, you spoke to me that one day. You were kind to me and shared the gospel. You gave me that cup of cold water that that helped me realize that Christians weren't quite the terrible person I thought they were. And there'll be people coming up to us and saying, I'm here because of you. And you may not even be aware of the people that, that, you, that you ministered to. All the money that we've, gave, that we've given to the Lottie Moon and the Annie Armstrong, some of that money will put missionaries out there that we're responsible to help put missionaries out there that will be able to lead people to Christ. And they'll be able to come back to you and say, you gave. You gave, so this missionary that actually gave me the gospel was there, but it was you who were the one that made it possible. We don't know all of what's going to happen. We don't know all of the people being reached by our internet ministry where we're putting out our messages. How many people are getting saved because they're hearing the gospel message on the internet? How many people are growing because of 
messages they're hearing on the internet? I don't know. I know I grow from a lot of the different places that I listen to. Our impact will have, our, our messages out there will have something. And as I said, I have the pleasure of being the one who delivers the majority of them, but you all are the ones that help put the, keep them on the, on the internet. You all are the ones that help keep them there, that do the prayers to keep them there, and lift up what's going on. There'll be blessings. And only God knows how much those blessings are. And usually those greatest blessings that we're going to be rewarded for are those that we have no idea that we did. Now, if you're a teacher, you kind of know that you've done something, and you know, you've, you've had impact in somebody's life. But how many times are we going to have impact on somebody's life because people are watching us live a godly life? Many of us, sometimes we have a negative impact. We're not living the godly life, and people are seeing that as well. But we're going to be rewarded for those times when we live the godly life, and somebody goes, you were different. You were different. You made me start thinking about. Maybe they didn't come to you and talk to you, but they started thinking because you had the witness of Christ in front of them. And they're going, yes, that started me thinking. That moved me down the path. And you know what? Even if we fail, that sometimes can have an impact on somebody. One of the greatest impacts of my dad's testimony was a buddy of his who was a Christian fell into a sin and did something really stupid, and he asked for forgiveness, and it impressed my dad enough to make him, well, these Christians are a little different. They're not perfect, but, but they have a forgiveness. And that doesn't mean we go out and sin just so we can have that impact, but it does mean that even when we fail we may have a positive impact on the world around us because God can use that uh, picture of repentance in their life to draw them to him. So we want to be very careful. We want to be careful how we look at our life and say that we're a failure because most of us are not as big a failure as we think we are because God is the one that's going to use it and he may be able to use much. And oftentimes we're not as good as we think we are because we think, oh, look at me, I've done so many good things and people are going, well, I, yeah, but I know, all the bad th- I know a lot of the bad things you're doing too. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask that you give us a great week this week. Help us to be able to share you with others around us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.